right. Well, we had a number of people drop out today due to sickness, so I'm recording on my phone, an old school way. Um, no live stream, as far as I know. Nobody's recording this for Facebook. No, okay. So, sorry to those at home. We'll try to work this out if this continues on for much longer. Um, but it is what it is. So, uh, we were are we're going to be in the the book of Genesis this morning. Um, we are in our second. Um, the second section of Genesis. We started this last year this time, and we'll go through um, next year where we'll finish up um, the entirety of Genesis. Um, so, But this morning we'll look at Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. And we'll go through chapter 12, verse 9. read those for us. Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. Who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would um, that you would give us ears to hear from your holy word today. That you would teach us through the life of Abram, Abraham today, God, as we uh, study, jump back into this study of Genesis together. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
So last year, we left off with Genesis in a pretty uh, desperate and dire situation. God's image bearers, instead of, instead of worshiping God, are, are now trying to be like God. So with no snake crusher in sight, the people continue to walk in the pattern of Satan, who is described in Isaiah 14 as saying words like these, which are very similar to the words that humanity is uttering at this point in the life of God's people. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And this has been the way since the fall has happened uh, in Genesis chapter 3. The people seek to establish a name for themselves, not for God. And so the Babel story in chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 capitalizes on this, on this pattern of human, lo- human pride attempting to climb into heaven to usurp God and His authority. Yet we see, even in this same chapter, that that it's God who intervenes on the situation. And God, even though He has the right and authority to do so, doesn't destroy them, but disperses them around the earth. And so what that lets us know is that God is not through with His creation. That God has not given up on His creation. And if God has not given up on them, then He also hasn't given up on us. And we see that throughout the life of this man we're introduced uh, to in chapter 11 named Abram. And with the exception of Jesus, Abram, or as we'll come to know him later, uh, Abraham, but I'm going to refer to him as Abram until his name is changed, He is probably one of the most important people in the Bible. And one proof for this is just the sheer amount of space that is given given to Abram. Consider that the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis covers 2,000 plus years of the world's history. And covers, it spans across 19 generations. And that's all shoved into 11 chapters. Fourteen chapters are given over to this one man, Abram. Uh, one pastor wrote, just considering just kind of the uh, just the the honor that is due Abram, I guess you could say the the, the way in which uh, people in the scriptures acknowledge Abram. One pastor wrote, Moses was a great lawgiver, Joshua was a great military leader, David, King David, was Israel's most brilliant king. Daniel was an outstanding statesman. Elijah was among the great prophets. Each of these, like many other prophets and leaders, was a giant. But each would have confessed in an instant that Abram was his father in the faith. Then think about how extensively the Apostle Paul speaks about Abram's example in both Romans and in Galatians. You could say Paul was, was, was a first century scholar of Abram. Constantly pointing back to his life. Constantly pointing back to the faith of Abram. As well as one of the longest paragraphs in Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith is devoted to the growth of faith in the life of this one Hebrew patriarch, Abram. You can't understand the Old Testament 
without understanding this man. Because Abram's call is the beginning of God's answer to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he promises that one will come and crush the head of Satan. It's the beginning, you could say, of the redemption story. Because of this, Abraham is a significant character in the life of God's people. And through his life, through Abram's life, we learn what God's grace looks like. So this morning, we'll look at three realities concerning God's grace towards his people in the life of Abram. And that's, it's in your worship guide if you're taking notes. First is the need of grace. Second is the call of grace. And third is the response of grace. So the need of grace, the call of grace, and the response of grace. So first, the need of grace. Look at chapter 11, verses 27 through 32 again. And just, I'm not going to read it again because my voice is, is, is weak right now. But um, there are a couple of things that I want you to notice in this particular passage, you might have, you might, have, we might have, you might have glossed over it. It's, it's kind of um, just kind of rehearsing some of these names of Abram's uh, family. So sometimes we kind of, you know, ignore those things in the scriptures. But it's really important that we kind of put our focus back on what is happening in verses 27 through 32, because there's a couple of things that you need to take notice of that are significant to understanding our own need of God's grace. But these things are also helpful in understanding that while Abraham is considered this this, uh, important person in the Bible, one of the most important people in the Bible, there was nothing in Abram or about Abram that commended him to God. And the same is true of you and me. We are completely dependent upon God moving toward us first. And this is what we see take place in the life of Abram. So the first thing to point out is found there in verse 30. Look there with me. It simply says, after explaining everything about the family situation, this one little tidbit of information is put in. Now Sarai, who is Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. Now this this little piece of information is, is heavily significant. Because of God's later promise to to Abram that he will make him into a great nation, later in chapter 15. That his offspring would would be more numerous than he could count. He says, look out, go out and look at the stars and count them if you can. Uh, Think about the sand on the seashore. That That is how numerous your offspring will be. Yet we learn here that his wife was barren. She couldn't have any kids. So automatically, you remember, you, you, just, you have to think that this, this calls for some sort of divine intervention. The way in which God was calling Abram to be the father of many doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. It doesn't line up with our reason. It doesn't line up with our logic. Why wouldn't God uh, choose someone who, who may have already had children? That's way more promising. I mean, maybe somebody who's already proven themselves to be worthy. It seems like uh, Abram's brother, was uh, Nahor, was, was a good candidate for that. It doesn't say anything about his wife being barren. But what we're seeing here is a perfect example of the Lord's work in the Lord's way. 
And sometimes the Lord's work doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But we can trust, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense to us, because God is God, that it's always good. And it's always a perfect plan. And the Lord's work must be done in the Lord's way because it creates the dependency that we must have upon Him alone and not in ourselves. And this is what He chooses to do in the life of Abram. So the second thing, so the first thing is that his wife is barren, which automatically creates this this need of God's grace in in, in his life. The second thing we see here in our text is, is probably not as clear as in verse 30, but it has to do with Abram's family environment in which he grew up. And there seems to be good evidence that Abram uh, came from a family that worshipped idols, which means <coughs> excuse me, Abram may have originally been an idol worshiper himself at some point in his early life. It's not exactly clear about that, but, but we know that there's evidence that, that directly connects uh, idol worship to Abram's uh, father, Terah. So we know at least he grew up around idol worship, that he wasn't growing up around the worship of the one true God. So we, we read about that in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua's final charge to the people before he dies. He gives, this, gives the people a spiritual challenge by reminding them of their pagan past. And this is what he says to them. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in, in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So this would indicate that Abram grew up around idolatrous, idolatrous practices. So Abram, if you're looking at Abram from the outside and saying, who qualifies to be this great leader of God's people? Who qualifies to be the father of, of many nations? And if you were looking at Abram's life, you would say, not this man. We probably should find somebody else. Yet God still chooses to use him in this significant way. And so he plucks him out of this family in order to do so. So the main point here is that there is, there is nothing in the ancestry of Abram, or if you looked at it at a much larger scale, there is nothing in the ancestry of God's people, and there's nothing in you that could commend you to God. This is what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this is important to see because God doesn't choose you based on what you look like or even who you are. God doesn't choose you based on your personality. Maybe you're an extrovert and you think, oh, well, God can use me because I enjoy talking to people. God doesn't choose you based on that. God doesn't choose you based on your potential for influence. 
You were chosen solely based on His grace alone toward you. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is what Abram's life is telling us. God chooses the most unlikely of all characters to follow him and to live for him. This is what one pastor said about Abram. It was Abram whom God saw and chose to be the father of many nations. God did not say about this man, here is a man with with some faith. I will be able to use him to bless the nations. God saw that there was nothing in Abram that could possibly commend him as an object of God's favor, just as there is nothing in us that that can commend us to God either. And what this means is that Abram is our guy. Abram is our man. We can relate to this great man of faith, Abram, because of this. He reminds us of who we are as we stand before God, which means we are all in need of this grace that God gives to us today and every day. And it's when we understand our need of this grace that we are better able to hear the call of grace. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So chapter 12 begins with this gracious call of God on Abram's life. And it might not look like much at, your, at the first reading, but, it, but in this first verse, we see the intensity of this call of grace upon Abraham's life. Because in this one verse, God calls Abram to leave everything familiar. Everything that it, that it brings comfort or peace or security, God tells him to leave it. And so you see that in the, as the intensity builds in this one verse, as he begins to call uh, Abraham to leave his country. Leave your country. And then he finishes with, leave your father's household. So God is calling him away from all of these things. Uh, was a de- was a decisive, divisive or decisive separation from his past. Pulling him out of his old life and setting him forth in a new one. So God calls him away from everything that would bring him earthly comfort and safety. To, to leave his country and to start anew in another foreign country. To leave his people, which meant leaving acceptance and prosperity and security. And then to leave his father's house, which meant to leave his immediate family relations. Those closest to him. His father and his mother, his, his brothers and his sisters, his, his uncles, his aunts, his nephews, his nieces, his grandfathers and his grandmothers. He's called to leave them. Now, this may seem harsh to you, depending on how, how close you are to family members. Some of you have really tight-knit families. And so you may read something like that and say, wow, that, that seems really harsh. I really hope God never calls me to do that. 
But God knew that calling Abram away from his earthly family was necessary for his spiritual growth. It was necessary for him. Some of you know this. Some of you have come here um, and you're stationed at Fort Gordon. And so you come here from another state or another country even. Some of you have come here from another city or another state for, for college. And so you're away from family. And some of you have just moved here from another state. Your job has brought you here. And so you're far away from home. You're far away from your family relations. And while this may be sad and difficult, I would encourage you not to lament this. Don't sit constantly thinking of ways to to escape your current situation and to get back to that comfort and to get back to that security. Rather, see it as God's grace toward you and its necessity for your spiritual growth. And know that this is the call of Christ to each of his followers. And what was read, uh, Joshua read for us earlier in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus said to everyone who was following it, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then later in that same chapter, in chapter 9, addressing those, because there was one, there was people there, obviously, who were questioning Jesus' teaching. I mean, how, how dare you say something like that? That seems extreme, that seems desperate, that seems really hard. And so you have several people who, who bring these doubts and these questions to Jesus because they want to attend to earthly matters before following Jesus. And so they say things like, let me go and bury my father first, which means uh, let my father run his, his course of life first. Let me be there with him until he dies. Then I'll go follow you. I could not possibly leave before then. Let me go back and tell my family goodbye. Let me make sure that everybody understands what's happening. Let me, let, them, let, let me make sure that they don't think I'm crazy. Let me put all these things in place before I go and follow you. Yes, following Jesus sounds great. But it's second to my family. So if I can somehow make it the best of both worlds, then, Jesus, I'll follow you. If I can somehow bring that comfort and security with me so that I have this backup plan, just in case it doesn't work out, then I'll follow you. And this is how Jesus addresses those who come with him with these questions and these comments. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So another way you could look at this. Another way that that I think is more helpful is that instead of seeing this call of grace as a separation from something, a separation from my family, a separation from this peace and security that, that I have, rather you should see it as a separation to something. A separation to God. A separation to His promises towards you. A separation to his blessings toward you. 
which is what God shows to Abram in verses 2 through 3. God says to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in, in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in these two verses, or two or three verses here, God offers Abram this sevenfold promise. Starting at the end of verse 1, he says, I will show you the land. And then in verse 2, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will give your offspring this land. All of those are promises to Abram. Even as he's calling him out of, his, of everything familiar, everything secure, he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. In his commentary on Genesis, Martin Luther called these verses one of the most outstanding and most important passages in Scripture. He goes on to say, you should consider that what the Lord promises Abraham here is altogether impossible, unbelievable, and untrue, If you follow reason, if you follow human reason, because it cannot be seen. Meaning that God's commands to his people, that's including you and me, God's commands to his people will not always be coupled with the reasons that you want. Or the reasons that necessarily make sense to your own logic. But they will always be accompanied by promises. And God's promises always come with a call to trust and obey. And what we'll see in our third point is that Abraham responds to God's call of grace in faith. Look at verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him and Lot went with him, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So the first point I want to point out, or the first thing I want to point out about Abram's response and our response to God's call upon us is that our response to God is that it is never a leap into the dark. When we are stepping out in faith, it is never a leap into the unknown. You may have been told that growing up, that's, that following God is, is, is like leaping out into the unknown. That is not true. Even though you may not be able to see what's ahead, when you are walking according to God's call upon your life, you are never in the dark. Never in the dark. Because as he commands you to go, he also promises that he will be there with you. And there is no darkness in him, therefore you are never walking in darkness. And it's in verse 3 where this most, this, the most significant promise is made, not only to Abraham, but also to you and me. It is this second messianic prophecy that is made here. You probably missed it uh, because it's very, very short and, and sweet. But if you remember, the first messianic prophecy that is made is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall happens. Right after the fall happens, God in His grace promises that he will bring one who will be the snake crusher. We call that the first gospel. 
And the snake crusher, we learn now, would come through Abram's line. Martin Luther again said of this verse that it should be written in golden letters and should be extolled in the languages of all people. For who else, for who else has dispensed this blessing among all nations except the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ? So Abram's motivation was not arbitrary. It wasn't a leap into the dark. Rather, it was reasoned and logical because the promise of the Messiah was given to Abram. And Abraham believed that promise. Now the reason we know this is, is, is one of the main reasons that Paul makes in his argument in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Paul uses this simple phrase, In you shall all the nations be blessed, to make this important point. Let me read this for us. Paul writes, Know then that it is not those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul is saying that within these words, in you shall all the nations be blessed, that Abraham was having the gospel of Jesus Christ right then and there preached to to him. So what that means is that Abraham was not driven by fear. Abraham was not driven by ambition. Abraham was driven by his faith in the Son of God. And so Abraham demonstrates what that faith looks like in two ways. First, he demonstrates it through his obedience. Look at verse 4 again. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So the phrase, so Abraham went, is an important one that means that literally means uh, Abraham got out. He got out. So the reason this is important because it, it corresponds back to what God sa- originally says to Abram in verse 1. Uh, God says to, 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 to Abraham, go, which literally means get out. Get out. It's also repeated again in verse 5. So the repetition of this verb lets us know that the central point of the story at this point is Abram's obedience to the call of grace. Simply put, when God says to Abram, get out of this land, Abram obeys and he gets out. And this is demonstrated through the actions of taking his family and his possessions. This was a a big deal uh, for him. Verse 5, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. He doesn't leave anything behind. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to set up a small city here just in case this doesn't work out, just in case um, God fails us on this. He fully obeys the call of God's call upon his life, and he doesn't leave room for a plan B. 
So the second way we see Abraham's faith, the first, first way is through his uh, obedience. The second way we see his faith demonstrated is through his worship. Look at verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So twice in these verses, uh, it tells us that Abraham responded to God by building an altar. So you see that once in verse 7 and then once in verse 8. But also in verse 8, you, you see that Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord. Abraham begins to worship the Lord. So for God's people, altar building was more than just building a place of sacrifice. There was lots of, there was lots of, uh, of, of pagan religions that would build altars and they would build them to, to specifically sacrifice animals to their pagan god. But for God's people, to build an altar was way more than just animal sacrifices. What, what altar building signified for God's people was communion with God and recognizing significant moments in the life of God's people. So they would build an altar. Wherever they were, they would stop and they would build an altar and they would worship. So building altars for Abraham was sort of a pattern in his life. We'll see it even in the, in the coming text, um, in the coming weeks, that Abraham builds altars and he worships the Lord. And the reason why Abraham does that is because building these altars continually helped to remind Abraham of the promises that God had made to him. So Abraham would go along his journey, and then he would stop, build an altar, and he would worship. So again, Abraham knew where his calling was coming from. Abraham knew who was leading him. Abraham uh, was convinced that the word of the Lord was true, and we see that because he regularly worships the Lord. And this is what regular worship is meant to do for us. This is, this is why we gather week in and week out. It's not just so that we can have uh, bodies in this seat and so that we can kind of tick up the numbers and make a name for ourselves. The reason we worship is so that we can remember the promises of God to us. So that we can remember uh, who we are in Christ. So that we can remember whose we are. That we belong to, to God. And that we can remind ourselves of, of God's own promises to us. This is what keeps us going in the Christian life. Sitting at home and, and not gathering with the body is detrimental. Detrimental to your faith. God calls you to worship. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want us to put worship in a box right now. I think a lot of the time we do kind of get stuck on this, this, this idea, and you probably think I do as well, of this whole idea of, of worship only takes place here. It only takes place on, on a Sunday morning with instrumental accompaniment, and it does. And this is an important gathering. The scriptures are very clear. Do not forsake the gathering of the body. We are to gather and worship every single week. But that's also a narrow view of what worship actually is. Because worship is all of life as well. You would be wrong to leave here today 
and never worship the Lord for the rest of the week until you gather again next Sunday. You should be worshiping individually. You should be worshiping as, as family members. You should be worshiping as your missional community. You should be worshiping with other believers because worship is all of life. And we see this demonstrated with Abram, Abram as he walks along his way, as he walks along his life. There's not designated days that he's worshiping or building these altars. He stops and says, I need to acknowledge the Lord. I need to worship him. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does your worship look like? What does your worship look like on a Sunday? Is it dull? Is it regimented? What does your worship look like in your life? What, is that, what does it look like? What does it mean for you to, to worship the Lord? How are you responding to God's grace in your own life day to day? Are you taking moments throughout your day to, to thank Him? To acknowledge Him? To praise Him? Even if you're not a Christian. Even if you're not a Christian, there's a thing called common grace. And that common grace is this, is this grace that God is bestowing upon you right now in this moment. If you have breath in your lungs, you are experiencing God's grace. How are you responding to that? That in Christ, God's grace is directed toward you. And we see this from the very beginning in Abram's life. That God is moving toward us. Fulfilling his promises to us in Jesus. And our response is to respond in faith. Amen. Let's pray.